BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick. With a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss whether time speeds up as we get older, why your life story only makes sense looking in reverse, whether or not brain games actually work, the importance of proactive learning instead of passive learning, why psychology confirms all your worst fears about studying and getting smarter, and much more with a special two-guest interview featuring Dr. Art Markman and Dr. Bob Duke. The Science of Success continues to grow with more than 700,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new and noteworthy, and more. A lot of our listeners are curious about how to organize and remember all this information. I get tons of listener emails and comments asking me how I keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing experts, listening to the podcast, and more. Because of that, we've created an awesome resource for you, and you can get it completely for free by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222. It's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. Again, to get it, just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or go to co. that's scienceofsuccess.co, and put in your email. In our previous episode, we discussed the daily practice that works to develop self-love, how fear is often the signpost for what we most need to do next, the lessons from a 550-mile pilgrimage through Spain, how seeking too much knowledge can be often counterproductive, and much more with our guest Kamal Ravikant. If you want to be inspired starting out this new year, listen to that episode. 
Today on the Science of Success, we have a special episode. Two guests at once. We have Dr. Bob Duke, who's a professor and the head of music and human learning at the University of Texas at Austin. He also directs the Psychology of Learning program at the Colborne Conservatory of Music in Los Angeles. We also have Dr. Art Markman, who's a professor of psychology and marketing at the University of Texas and the founding director of the program in the human dimensions of organizations. Together, they co-host the NPR radio show, Two Guys on Your Head, and recently co-authored the book, Brain Briefs. Gentlemen, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks a lot for having us. Well, we're very excited to have both of you guys on here. So for guests who may not be familiar, can you each kind of introduce yourselves and, and say hi and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'll go first. So yeah, I'm, I'm Art Markman. I am a professor of psychology. I study the way people think. So I'm interested in reasoning and decision-making and motivation. And for me, in addition to writing lots of papers that get read by 30 of my closest colleagues, it occurred to me not so long ago that, that almost everybody I know has a mind. Almost nobody knows how that mind works. And so I try to spend a lot of my time, in addition to doing research, to bringing insights from the field of cognitive science outward to other people in the hope that they might use that information to live their lives differently and probably better. And I'm Bob Duke. And as you said, Matt, I'm a professor of music and human learning here at the University of Texas. Throughout my career, I've been studying learning and memory, not only in the context of music making, but in other contexts as well. And it's always been of interest of mine because I work with a lot of people who are preparing to be teachers. What are the mechanisms by which people develop skills, form memories, refine their skills over time? And Art and I had had several informal interactions over the years before we actually got started doing the radio show. And it's been now, I guess, going on four years now, right, Art? And it's been a wonderful collaboration that it's been a great deal of fun to be a part of. Well, you guys have so many fascinating topics that you've written about and talked about. I'd love to start out, you know, the way that the book Brain Briefs is kind of structured. You have all these amazing questions and you kind of go into answering a bunch of them. I'd love to start out and kind of go through a few of these questions that I found really, really interesting and kind of get your take on it and share some of those insights with our audience. One of the first that I found really fascinating was, does time speed up as we get older? <laughs> The older you get, the more that you begin to worry about that. But since Bob's the older one, I'll, I'll let him share his experience on this first. Well, the short answer is yes. <laughs> and of course, what we mean by that, it doesn't actually speed up, but our, certainly our perceptions of the passage of time change as we age. And there are a couple of explanations for that that I'll let Art tell you about. But one of the things that's sort of interesting about that is that when you look back into your past right? Our perceptions of what we recall, what we remember change over time for reasons that have to do not only with an aging brain, but also with just the proportion of experiences that we've accumulated over the course of many years of a lifetime. And so obviously one thing that makes time feel like it's sped up is just that the older you get, the more experiences you've already had relative to what you're going through right now. So, you know, a year of your life when you're six years old is an enormous proportion of your life, whereas a year of your life when you're, say, 50 is a much smaller proportion compared to what you've experienced. But in addition to that, as you get older, your life tends to become more routine. You tend to rely on things that you've done before. And as a result, you don't lay down lots of new landmarks in your life the way you do when you're younger. When you're younger, you have, you know, your first time on a bicycle, your first time going to school, your first time getting in a fight on the schoolyard or whatever it is. When you get older, you tend to do the same stuff over and over again. And then when you look back on it, it's hard to separate out all of the events, which does have the happy 
fact that if you continue to create lots of new experiences for yourself, like say by starting to do a radio show or something like that, then you have the opportunity to slow time down a little bit. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's embedded in what Art's talking about is how much our brains in their efficiencies pay less and less attention to things that don't change. So one of the the ways that that routine issue that Art was talking about affects what happens to our memories is that our brain recognizes that there's no real reason to keep reforming this memory because it's just like the memory that's already in there. And I think all of us have probably experienced driving to work or driving home from the office and you know having many things on our mind and getting home and not remembering the trip. Well, that's an example of how our minds can be other places when things become highly routinized. Which, by the way, isn't a terrible thing, since the yeah. last thing you'd want to do is to clutter your mind with all of the details of your daily commute. But it, it does make the time seem a little bit shorter when you look back on it. I find it so fascinating. And I think the idea that it's, you know, sort of a proportion of your life, right? Like if you, like you said, if you're a six year old, one year is a massive portion of your life. Whereas the older you get, a year is sort of incrementally less and less of your total life experience. Thanks um, for the reminder. <laughs> <laughs> You know, one of the things that you said I found really fascinating is the idea of landmarks, right? And how our memories are formed by unique new experiences. I once heard an example of a dinner party and someone was saying, how can you make a dinner party more memorable? And they said, instead of having everybody sit in the same room and listen to the same music for four hours, change the room you're in and change the vibe, change the music every hour. And so instead of having kind of one memory that your brain lumps together, you suddenly have four distinct memories that feel longer, even though it's the same amount of time. Yeah. No, that sort of thing is great. And I think, you know, by extension, I think people should be a little bit mindful of trying on some new experiences, trying out some new things in order to create those landmarks in your daily life so that it's not just remembering the dinner party. It's also remembering, you know, October. <laughs> <laughs> And that touches on something, this is not a question from Brain Briefs, but something I know you've talked about, which is kind of the importance of openness to new experiences. I'd love to hear a little bit about that and why it's so relevant. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, in most of our lives, this is a good thing to follow up on what you just asked about, about the passage of time. Our brains make memories when there are things to pay attention to that we need to pay attention to. And the more predictable our lives are from day to day, the less our brains need to pay attention because we know what's going to happen and it pretty much happens the way we expected it to and there's not much to really think about or to lay down memories for. But when you create new experiences for yourself, and Art mentioned this a couple minutes ago about aging, you know, when you create new experiences as you age, you're creating more memories that make your life seem more full and more interesting and more engaging. And I think often, you know, we underestimate how much new experiences actually can do for us, for our mood, our sense of well-being and everything. But we have to acknowledge the fact that many people are not so open to new experiences. They like routines and they like to know what's coming up. So in everybody's life, the challenge is to find a balance, a personal balance for you about how much newness, how many new experiences do you want in a given span of time? And how much do you want to rely on the predictable things that you know are going to happen every day? And I think if anybody examines their own life, I mean, certainly for me, there are routines that I have in my day that I like very much the fact that those are routines. But having the job that I have and the job that Art has, we get to experience a lot of new things in any given week. And that also makes our lives seem that much more energized and vital. 
But the thing is, you have to remember that, as Bob likes to say, brains are efficient, and he usually follows up that by pointing out that efficient is another word for lazy, which means that brains really want to keep doing what they did last time. And so one of the reasons why there's such a strong driver to keep doing the comfortable and familiar thing is because it actually feels good in the moment to do that. You know what's going to happen, you know how it works, and so you, you settle into this routine. And as a result, you're often a little bit hesitant to engage in some new thing because it seems like an awful lot of work. And so we we often don't do those things. And so, you know, we actually do in the book talk a little bit about openness in the first chapter because, you know, Bob and I, as he said, are, are privileged to be in careers where we have the opportunity to do all sorts of new and interesting things. Nonetheless, when, when our producer, Rebecca McEnroy, asked us, hey, would you guys like a show on the radio? which is something we had never really considered before. We sort of stared at each other at first. Um, I think our initial reaction was, uh, what? That seems like a lot of work. But then our openness to experience kicked in and we thought, yeah, sure, why not? And we ended up doing this brand new thing that neither of us had ever envisioned for ourselves. And it, it's turned out to be a wonderful part of our lives. So I think that, you know, that first hesitant reaction is one we often give into. But by not giving into that and trying that new thing, we create all sorts of opportunities that we didn't envision in advance. And in a previous talk that you guys have given, I think you shared an example of Dyson vacuums. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love well, to hear so, that story. Sure. So James Dyson, he was an interesting guy. And one of the things about him that was so interesting was that he just learned a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff without regard for why it might be valuable later. So one of the things he learned about was sawmills, which... You know, most of us don't have much experience with sawmills. My personal experience is usually in cartoons, right? Saw blade, log, body on the log. Real sawmill has no bodies on the log in general, but but definitely logs and saw blades and a lot of sawdust. And what he learned about them was that the way they get rid of all that sawdust is by sucking it out of the air and then using a giant contraption called an industrial cyclone to pull the sawdust out of the air. Now, he learned about this without any real sense of, wow, this is going to be important to me later, until one day he was contemplating how to make vacuum cleaners work more effectively, and in particular, how to keep the bag of a vacuum from filling up and getting its pores clogged in ways that lessen its efficiency. And he realized that you could take the industrial cyclone that a sawmill uses and build a small home version of it and put it into a vacuum cleaner and that that would actually change the need for a bag in a vacuum. And I think what's most important about that is we live in an era educationally in which we are told what to learn in our education system. And then we're told, learn this stuff in particular because it's going to be on the exam, which leads to my least favorite question as a professor, which is when students come up to me and say, will this be on the exam? And after years of struggling with that question, it occurred to me that the proper answer to students is when they say, will this be on the exam? I say, yes, but it might not be my exam because you never know when that piece of information you learned is going to turn out to be valuable. And that really speaks to, I think, the way many people think about planning out their lives and what's going to happen. And I think there's become an unfortunate trend in certainly achievement-oriented people in American culture that the thing to do is to plan out this linear trend. You know, I'm going to get this degree, and then I'm going to do this internship, and then I'm going to go to graduate school, and then I'm going to get this job. And, and, and all of those plans are built around the idea that I know now 
exactly what I'm going to need to do and need to learn and need to be able to do 10 years from now. That is a fiction, right? I mean, everyone we know, and and I, I do mean everyone who is really successful at what they do, knows a lot, as Art said, about a lot of things that when they learned them, really there was no indication that that would be one of the central things that would allow them to be successful. So the questions that people think about, whether they're college students or even younger students or young adults who are just you know starting out in their life and thinking, well, what kind of things do I need to know to be able to be successful in this thing? Well, there certainly is a package of stuff that's important for you to be able to function. But beyond that, the people who really excel, the people who have all the features that employers and admirers claim to to want. I mean, they're creative, they're insightful, they're good problem solvers. Didn't get there through a linear path of activities and learning experiences. They got there through some circuitous path, going through some things that seemed to be pointless at the time, other things that didn't seem to be particularly interesting, other things that were fascinating, but maybe weren't going to be useful and then ended up being useful. And I think the openness to experience idea really is about that issue, about exploring things that you might be curious about, that might be interesting to you, that might be enlightening in some way, even without the guarantee that in the long run, it's going to be useful. And just to follow up on Bob's point for a second, one of the things that's really important is I think a lot of people tend to edit their life story in the forward direction, meaning they have this idea of what their life is going to be like, and then they seek experiences that are consistent with that idea of where their life is going and they avoid experiences that don't seem to fit the narrative that they're creating. The problem is that when you look at the the life stories of successful people, that life story generally only makes sense when you look back on it. In the forward direction, it's pretty chaotic. They tried all sorts of things, some of which worked out, some of which didn't, some of which turned out to be important, some of which didn't. And in the moment, it was often very difficult to determine what the pivotal pieces of learning were, what the pivotal experiences were. And yet they were just open to trying those things, knowing that some number of those were going to turn out to be valuable in the future. I think that's such a powerful insight and something that I think you guys did such a good job explaining and really impacting for the listeners. In the vein of something you touched on a little bit earlier, the idea of the brain's kind of efficiency and or laziness, another question that you ask in the book is, is our memory doomed to fail? And I'm really curious what you think about that. Bob, do you remember what we wrote about that? I, I can't remember a thing. Did we even write that show? I, I don't know. I mean, the short answer to this one, this is how you turn something, little ideas into a book. You have a short answer and then you talk about it for the next six pages. But I mean, the short answer is, well, our memories are doomed to decline in terms of the retrievability of things in our memory. And my favorite thing that Art says, I see we're both saying each other's lines on this podcast here, <laughs> is that, you know, by the time you reach your mid-20s, your brain starts a long and slow decline. That's the bad news. But the good news is the decline is long and slow. Even though there are certain diseases and injuries and other kinds of things that lead to rapid declines in memory and cognitive function, for a typical human being who is relatively healthy, that decline is so slow that it's mostly imperceptible. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. 
Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Well, even though, as we get older, because we're attuned to the idea that our memories are likely to fail, we are on heightened alert to notice every instance when we can't find our keys or I can't remember somebody's name or whatever it happens to be, when in fact, those are things that have probably been a part of our lives for many years. It's just as we're getting older, they seem to loom larger in our perception. Yeah, the, the fact is we've been forgetting things our entire lives, and we don't start worrying about that forgetting until we get older because we believe that that is now a sign of an impending cognitive apocalypse. And I always like to point out, I have three kids, and when they were younger, they would constantly forget stuff. They'd forget to do homework. They'd forget to take out the trash. They would forget all sorts of stuff. And I like to say that at no point did any one of them ever say, wow, I just had a senior in high school moment. But then you get older, you know, you turn 50 or whatever, whatever age it turns out to be for you and you forget something. And now you think, well, it's over. And it, it turns out that one of the worst things you can do for your memory as you get older is to worry about your memory. What the studies show is that older adults who are worried that their memory is getting worse perform worse on memory tests than people who are getting older and don't worry about their memory getting worse. And you can even induce that in a study. You can induce that worry about your memory and see that effect. So what this means is, you know, relax. The fact is, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, studies show that if you want to know where somebody's cognitive peak is, that long, slow cognitive decline means that in your 20s, you process information fastest and you remember new things the quickest. In terms of what makes you really smart, because that has to do with what you know, you've accumulated lots of knowledge over the course of your life. And so the people who are actually acting most intelligently tend to be people in their 60s and 70s because they have a, a huge base of experience and knowledge that they can draw from. And yeah, there might be a couple of things here and there they've forgotten, but that huge store of knowledge actually gives them an advantage over younger people. So in many ways, younger people need to be faster because they don't know as much. So the processing power itself kind of slows down a little bit, but the benefits of the accumulated wisdom and knowledge essentially outweigh that slowdown for a number of years. 
and particularly for people who remain mentally active, right? I mean, we know very clearly that the more new things you continue to learn throughout your life and the more new things you experience, the longer the deficits in memory that begin to accrue are held at bay. They don't become noticeable to you because the way we retrieve memories from our memory store is by ways of all of the things that each memory is connected to, right? So the more interconnections you have among the things in your head, the easier it is to retrieve them. So if you're experiencing new things, one of the things that that's prompting your brain to do is to create new connections among things that may be related in ways that when you learned them 10 years ago, you didn't really recognize that relationship. And now you do. And as I was saying, the advantage of older adults and being one, I'm, I'm happy to claim this advantage is that not only do I have a lot of stuff in my memory, but that stuff is organized in a way that lets me access it in ways that are very advantageous. You know, we talk often about why would you have people memorize a lot of things when you've got an encyclopedia a map of the earth in your pocket, in your phone. I mean, you can retrieve all kinds of information from the phone. But the issue with that is you can only work with so many things at a time in your so-called working memory, your processing part of your memory. And the more time it takes you to get the stuff you're going to stick into your working memory, the slower you are. So if you've already memorized some things and you're pulling out information that's already in your memory, you can, I'm sure it's clear, how much more efficient that would be than have to start typing on a keyboard or on a phone to go find something out. The other thing is the brain has so many great ways of accessing that information based on the similarity between the situation you're in right now and stuff that you've learned before. Whereas if you're trying to find that information on the computer, you have to find the right question to ask. So had Google existed in the late 1970s when Dyson was thinking about trying to remove the bag from the vacuum, if he had been able to Google, how do you get rid of the bag in a vacuum cleaner, he would have gotten a whole bunch of websites and probably educational videos about how to change the bag in your vacuum. But it, <laughs> At no point would any of those sites have said, oh, and by the way, consider replacing that bag with an industrial cyclone. So you got to have that knowledge in your head if you're going to do really interesting stuff. And one of the things, you know, I'm a huge fan of Charlie Munger, and, and we talk about him a lot on the podcast, and he talks about the idea of kind of mental models and organizing your memories and your knowledge on a kind of a coherent lattice work that is easily accessible. So I think that's such a great point. Yeah. yeah. On the idea of, of sort of remaining mentally active, one of the questions that you guys touch on is something I'm really curious about is, do brain games work? <laughs> Shortest chapter in the book. <laughs> Well, no. if work means, do they help you learn to play brain games? Absolutely, they work. <laughs> yeah. Whether they do anything beyond that, there's not a lot of evidence that that's, that that's the case. Yeah. It turns out that you know, brain games tend to focus on, on very specific tasks and well-intentioned at first, right? I think the idea was that we know, for example, that this concept that Bob was talking about of working memory, the amount of stuff you can hold in mind, is related to performance on all kinds of tests of intelligence and things like that. And so there was a real interesting question of if we could expand your working memory capacity, would that in fact make you smarter? But it turns out that there isn't really a compelling way of changing the brain's architecture in a way that increases that working memory capacity in a way that creates general intelligence. And so as Bob was saying, what you learn when you play these brain games is how to play the game. 
But you may as well, if you're going to practice something, you may as well practice something that you may actually encounter again later outside of the context of sitting on your phone or your computer. Yeah. And, you know, for anybody who enjoys brain games just for the fun of the game, well, then great. They should play they should play whatever, you know, things they want to download. I'm an Angry Birds fan. I don't know anybody's, you know, but nobody claimed that that was a brain game, right? But if you think about what really engages the mind in a way that develops thinking, it's not just responding to other things, but it's creating new things on your own. You know, people who read have a different experience than people who write. Because writing requires a different set of activities in your brain than reading, watching a good video, whatever it happens to be, which are mostly receptive kinds of responses. And we know that brains are trying to figure out what they need to do. Well, if you're engaged in something where you're receiving input from somewhere else, it really doesn't matter what you do. The stream of input keeps coming and whatever. Well, then there's not really a lot for your brain to be engaged in. But if you're having to generate something on your own, it engages not only the parts of your brain that have to control whatever motor activity or whatever has to do the stuff, but it also requires you to draw from different parts of your memory that might not even have been connected before because of the nature of the task you're trying to accomplish. And I'll let, I'll let Art talk about this too, but one of these that springs to mind is that Art, as an adult, had always wanted to play the saxophone. And rather than, you know, waiting until his family was surrounding him on his deathbed, you know, saying, whispering, I always wish I'd played this, always wanted to play the saxophone. He actually went out and learned to play the saxophone. So I'll, I'll let him talk about that experience a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. You know, as Bob points out, it's, it's really important to engage in activity. In fact, you know, B.F. Skinner, who was the sort of one of the granddaddies of behaviorist psychology, kind of gets a bad rap in modern times because there were limitations to behaviorism. But one of his fundamental insights was that in order for the brain to learn something, it's you don't just expose yourself to information. You also engage in activity. And activity was a fundamental part of the learning process that he was working on. And I think that that's something that's actually gotten lost a little bit. And, and you know, as Bob was saying, you know, I think it is really important for us to continue to do that throughout our lives. And, and so when I was in my mid 30s and was thinking about stuff I would have always liked to do, and, and I had read some research on regret, actually, the research on regret shows that if you ask a bunch of college sophomores what they regret, it's almost exclusively dumb stuff they did, like getting drunk at a party. But if you ask older adults, people in their 70s, 80s and 90s what they regret, it's almost exclusively stuff they didn't do. And one of the reasons that that data point is so important is because we all have a remarkable mental capacity for time travel where we can project ourselves to the end of our lives and then look back and ask, is there something I would regret not having done? And for me, one of those things was I had never learned to play the saxophone. And so in my mid-30s, I got up one day and said, all right. I went out and found a teacher and bought a saxophone and, and set the fairly realistic goal that in 10 years I wouldn't suck. And that's worked out okay. I'm, I'm in Austin and I'm in a band, which is almost obligatory if you live in <laughs> Texas. So as a corollary to kind of thinking about brain games, and by the way, actually, before I say this, I love the point that you guys made about the critical importance of active learning and not just sitting there passively, whether it's watching YouTube or, or reading or whatever it might be, but really engaging your brain in the learning process. I'm curious, writing, as you guys touched on, is obviously kind of one potential way to do that. But for somebody that's maybe outside of school, you know, that's graduated, that's in the, the working world, what are some ways that we can kind of actively learn and really engage with information instead of just being passive consumers of it? 
Well, you know, I think if you're in a community that's large enough, you know, that there are various clubs and where people who share a given interest can, you know, go and engage together in in something, it doesn't have to be necessarily an intellectual only task. I mean, or or even a musical task. I mean, there are many community choirs that people can sing in if, if music is what you're into and what you'd like, like to do. Some people take up a new sport. You know, they learn if they never played handball, they learn to play handball, or they learn some other skill that requires some effort. And one of the things that Art and I talk about a lot is that learning is effortful when it works. If you don't feel like you're putting much effort into something, you're probably not learning as much as you might think you are or or as much as you're intending to. And I think, you know, if you're engaging in something that makes you happy, like for art, playing the saxophone, well, then the effort is well spent because you feel like, my God, an hour ago, I couldn't do this. And I've been practicing for an hour and now I can do this. That's a pretty cool thing. And it's enjoyable because I like music and I like playing the saxophone. And when you contrast that to a brain game, you know, I said, well, God, you know, my my score an hour ago was X and now my score now is X plus whatever value. OK. And what? Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing I'm going to go You know, I think that's absolutely right. And the fact is that technology provides all sorts of opportunities for people to be more active in the way that they learn. So 25 years ago, if you wanted to practice your writing, you might keep a journal But for many people, just keeping a journal or writing something that you kept to yourself wouldn't necessarily feel that rewarding. Now you can go on the Internet and have a Google blogger site set up in eight minutes, and then you can start writing and putting it out there for people to see. And so there are all of these opportunities to engage with material that you think is important and interesting to write about it. And while you may have the opportunity to educate or influence others with that, you are also solidifying your own knowledge by engaging with it in that active way. So I think there's just more avenues for doing that that don't require just sitting and playing little games. So changing directions a little bit, I'm curious, one of the other topics that you guys talk about is the idea that we, quote unquote, only use 10% of our brains. I'd love to to hear your insights on that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so that one of the great myths that's out there. And as a cognitive psychologist, probably the question I get asked most frequently in some form or another. And so one of the things we wanted to do is to understand where that sentiment came from, because, of course, the brain, we actually use all of our brain all of the time. It's an extraordinarily energy hungry organ. It's it's about three percent of the human body weight. It uses 20 to 25 percent of someone's daily energy supply. And that's really the amount of energy that's required just to keep the lights on. The physiological processes that are required to keep the brain active are very expensive from an energy standpoint, which is why most beings on the planet don't have large brains relative to their body size. So where does this myth come from? And and it may come from one of two places. One is that early neuroscientists, when they were exploring the brain, found that only, you know, a small mass of the cells in the brain are neurons, the ones that actively carry signals. And most of them are support staff glial cells and other things like that that support what the brain is doing. And so you could argue, well, only about 10% of the cells in the brain are the ones that are actively engaged in the thinking process. And a lot of the rest of it is cells that are working behind the scenes. But another issue has to do with brain capacity. You know, one of the amazing things about the human 
brain is that we're continually able to learn stuff and the brain doesn't get full. There isn't some day at which you try to learn some new thing and your brain says, sorry, can't do that, can't learn anything else. And so a number of writers from William James on forward have made the point that we may very well only use a small fraction of our capacity for thinking. And so that 10% number may reflect that also. Another question that I thought was really interesting out of the book is, does listening to Mozart make us smarter? <laughs> Wouldn't that be lovely if it did? I tell you, it would be great. I'd be so smart. I listen to Mozart all the time. You know, I, like many things in the sciences, and Art and I talk about this in many different contexts, you know, somebody publishes an article that is caught by the media and portrayed in a way that's not quite as circumspect <laughs> as it should be. And then it just kind of takes off. And in 1997, I think it was, this article came out almost 20 years ago now, that these psychologists in California had people listen to Mozart and then take a spatial reasoning test, which is one dimension of IQ. And the people who listened to Mozart got higher scores than the people who didn't. And this sort of became the Mozart effect. And now, you know, there's a the term Mozart effect is now copyrighted and people publish things that they sell for, you know, for babies and all this kind of stuff. And actually, when you look critically at the data, there's no evidence that listening to Mozart really does anything that doing a lot of other things wouldn't do. I, there was one study that I don't think was ever published, but this guy put this up online. He had people stare at a moving computer screensaver and their scores went up as much as they did listening to Mozart. So it's a lot of it has Flying to do with... Effect. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. So a lot of this has to do with arousal and attention. You know, and what we know, basically, if you're going to stimulate somebody such that they might do perform better on some cognitive tasks for people who don't like Mozart, if you make them listen to Mozart, they're not going to perform better. They're probably going to perform worse. You know, so what people actually are responding to are ways to heighten arousal and heighten attention. And you understand how that would be evolutionarily a smart thing for brains to do, right? When you're aroused in some way, you're a little more attentive, you're thinking a little faster. I mean, all those things that allow us to navigate the world are in play here. But like many things that sound too good to be true, this is too good to be true. And I want to just follow up on one thing, because if you juxtapose playing brain games and listening to Mozart, you also get this other piece, which is a lot of times we want to find ways of getting something for nothing, right? We all know from school that in order to get a good grade on a test, you know, you have to read the textbook and answer some questions and study and study early and often. We know that, but what we keep hoping is that there's an easier way, that if we could only put the book under the pillow or let it play while we're asleep or listen to Mozart or play this fun video game, then that would obviate the need to do the hard work that's required to learn stuff. And what I tell any student that I teach in a cognitive psychology class is that psychology confirms all of your worst fears about studying. You have to do the work. And while it may at the front end seem unappealing to have to take that big book down and slog through it, that is, in fact, what you have to do in order to learn stuff. You have to actually do the work and face the knowledge. There isn't really a shortcut. But man, wouldn't it be great if there were? And that's, I think, what a lot of people respond to when they see effects like that. 
And that's something we've had previous psychologists on the show that have talked about the exact same phenomenon, which is that, you know, maybe instead of get rich quick schemes, it's people are constantly looking for these kind of get smart quick schemes. And the reality is the way to become smarter, the way to become a better decision maker is to just put in the work. And it's a long journey. It's a challenging journey. But at the end of the day, it's one that's really worthwhile. I think, Matt, what leads people to be attracted by the ideas of brain games or whatever other thing that offers some promise of, you know, getting you smarter or more creative or whatever, is that when people say to somebody, well, you have to put in the work, a lot of people are asking, well, what the hell does that mean? I mean, work at what? What do I do? And I think when you look at people who are generally adept at dealing with the circumstances that they confront in their lives, those people tend to be generally curious people, right? They wonder about things. They say, well, why, why is that like that? And why does that thing take so much more time than this other thing does? Or what, whatever it happens to be that they're considering at the moment. And that kind of curiosity is enlivening in terms of your memory, in terms of your perception, in terms of your general thinking ability, because you're asking a lot of questions. And what brains are willing to expend effort to do is solve a problem, right? And so by creating little problems for yourself, even just asking the question, well, why is that? Well, now you've got a problem to solve. And that ongoing problem solving is beneficial to your thinking over time. But this actually raises another point that we talk about in the book a little bit, but it seems relevant here, which is we have a, a very strange relationship with errors and failure. We don't like to not know stuff. We don't like to not know how to do stuff. And so, and if you think about our education system, one of the things it teaches us is mistake minimization. The way you get good grades in school is by getting stuff right, not by getting something wrong and then repairing your error, which is actually what makes you smart in the long run. And so this is a real problem because what it means is a lot of people are a little bit afraid of really digging into some new thing because they don't like that feeling of being in this nether region in which they are aware that there's this thing they don't know anything about, but they don't know it yet. And I think one of the things you have to do if you're going to really broaden that base of experience and do the work you need to do to be smarter is to be willing to tolerate both the knowledge that, hey, here's something I know I don't know, and I'm going to work for a long period of time to repair that gap. And I'm a tremendous fan of Carol Dweck and the whole, the book Mindset and the whole distinction between the fixed and growth mindset. I think it's so important to accept and embrace your mistakes and to kind of try to move your ego out of the way whenever you're thinking about your own mistakes. I absolutely agree with you, Matt. I'm also a Carol Dweck fan, but I, you know, the thing is schools don't make that easy, right? Because I know of very few instances where not getting things right provides you with opportunities to correct what you've done and actually get credit for the correction. You know what I mean? I mean, usually what schools cultivate, as Art was saying a minute ago, is get it right when you get asked or when the paper comes due or whatever it happens to be. And I think, you know, Art, Art and I had the privilege of working at a major research university. And so we get paid our exorbitant salaries to be confused most of the time. You know, I mean, we're trying to solve problems that no one's solved before and answer questions that nobody's answered before. And it's confusing. And we get a lot of stuff wrong. But without the opportunity to try and fail and then retry and maybe retry many times after that, it's impossible to make any intellectual progress. Carol Dweck is great. Carol and I were colleagues together for a while at Columbia before she went off to Stanford and I came down here to Texas. And I completely agree that that, that mindset of being willing to try things that may fail is so important 
particularly because when we evaluate the skilled performance of other people, we discount all of the work that they've done. So when people hear your podcast or when they read a book that they really enjoy, they're seeing a final product of something. They're not seeing all of the work that went into creating that. They're not seeing all of the attempts that didn't go as well. They're not reading the first drafts of prose. Bob has the privilege. I, the way we wrote this book in general is I like to fill blank pages. Bob likes to edit. And so it was a match made in heaven. One of the things that that means is that Bob got to read a tremendous amount of half-baked prose that ultimately became what came out in the book. But nobody else gets to see that. And I think that it's important for people to realize that almost every bit of skilled performance that you see required a tremendous amount of work and effort and revision and practice to get there. And that that is the critical insight underlying the mindset work that Carol Dweck works on. So I'd love to kind of segue into something that you talked about at the very beginning, Bob, that relates to this, which is that, you know, you said your expertise is kind of helping people develop skills and, you know, thinking about how they form memories and how they refine their skills over time. I'd love yeah. to dig into that a little bit and kind of some of the major lessons you've learned about how we can become more skilled, how we can really focus in on refining our skills over time. Yeah. One of the things that's sort of central to this whole idea of becoming more skillful is you have to become more perceptive about what you're doing. A lot of people who are practicing a skill, whatever the skill happens to be, who aren't noticing the somewhat smaller features of what they're doing really has no opportunity to improve. And anybody who watches somebody teach a really good lesson or take a really good lesson, what you see is what really excellent teachers do is they help people know what to pay attention to. And that's as big a part of the teaching as telling them what to do. Right. Because when we develop skills, it's not because someone told us to do something and now we do it. I mean, would that it were that easy. Right. But the part of our brain where skill memories are activated and where they run off is not something you can tell verbally or consciously to say, OK, do this now. You have to just do it. And as we were talking about a few minutes ago, in doing it, you're going to make some errors and you're going to have to make adjustments that are even below being able to control consciously. I mean, art plays the saxophone. The saxophone is one of the most inherently out-of-tune instruments in terms of the way it's built of the wind family. I mean, it's terribly out-of-tune. So if a saxophonist is going to play a scale in tune and all the notes are going to be in tune, the saxophonist has to make all kinds of adjustments to the tension in their mouth and the placement of their tongue and the speed of the air. And there's no way to tell somebody, now this is where your tongue comes up a little bit, and this is where you squeeze a little bit with your embouchure. There's no way to do that. What you do is you listen to the sounds that you're making, and somehow your body figures out through trial and error what kinds of things you need to do to play the scale in tune. But that's not going to happen if somebody doesn't hear what an in-tune scale sounds like and recognize the discrepancy between the scale I'm playing now and the in-tune scale. So that's a real challenge. I, I think a lot of people who see, you know, if you're, you're a golf fan, I, I'm not a golfer, but, I, but if you really love golf and you watch pros or, or you watch these videos that help you become better, I mean, one of the things that really, when you watch a great teacher, whether you're a pitching coach or a golf pro or whatever it happens to be, and you say, what are they talking about the most? They're getting students to notice more about what they're doing. Because if you don't know really clearly what the goal is you're trying to accomplish, and recognize the discrepancies between what you're doing now and what you're trying to do, well, then the likelihood of 
improving at what you're doing is really, really low. And what we know from a lot of studies is that the lower your level of performance in an area, the worse you are at judging your own performance. So the the least good performers are the ones who most overestimate how good they are at whatever it was they just did. And one of the things, and Bob talks about this a lot, one of the things that expert performers are really good at is identifying all of the flaws in what they just did so that they can improve them. And I think it's just that self-monitoring ability is so crucial for improving your skills because you can't fix an error you're not aware of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That phrase, that line is so important. You can't fix an error you're not aware of. And I think many times a lot of it comes from this kind of framework of mistake minimization that people are taught in school and elsewhere. There's such a kind of almost subconscious incentive to bury your mistakes, to hide from your mistakes, to pretend like, you know, oh, I didn't make any mistakes. What are some ways that people can cultivate that self-awareness of their flaws in a way that's non-threatening to them? One of the most important things to do is to hang out with other people who acknowledge their flaws. And you see this in industries. My favorite example is, and I talk about this a lot, is the FAA. The airline industry, you would think that if ever an industry wanted to hide its flaws, it would be the aviation industry. Because if you scared people into thinking that aviation was unsafe, then people wouldn't stick themselves in a metal tube and allow themselves to be hurled through the air at hundreds of miles an hour. In fact, if you're a member of the aviation industry and you make an error, If you report that error through a system the FAA has developed within 24 hours and your error was not the result of breaking the law, like coming to work drunk, then that error can't influence your status with the company you work for. You can't be fired. You can't be reprimanded for that error. And the reason for that is because the FAA actually takes all of those mistakes and catalogs them and uses that to figure out what changes in procedures, what changes in maintenance schedules are needed to keep aviation safe, which is why airplane flight is as safe as it is. The reason that this works is because the entire industry has decided single mistakes are not the problem. The cascade of errors that leads to catastrophic failure is the problem. And I think that by extension, whenever you spend time with a community of people who are willing to acknowledge their mistakes, it makes you much more comfortable in doing that yourself. And I think that that's just absolutely crucial for allowing yourself to continue to improve in all the things you do. I'd love to segue to a different topic just for a moment. You've talked about the importance of sleep. I'd love to hear your thoughts about why it's critical to sleep and why sometimes doing things like pulling all-nighters is often not the most effective strategy. So we live in a chronically underslept society in which people think that sleep is something that they'll do, you know, when they're dead. And it turns out that you spend about a third of your life asleep, which means that it must play some important function. And it really does. The brain is actually extraordinarily active while you're sleeping. And it's doing several different things. One of the things the brain is doing during sleep is actually clearing toxins out of the brain that build up over the course of the day, partly just through the things that build up from using energy and partly from other toxins that may come in through other activities people engage in. But on top of that, the brain is actually actively helping you to remember and to forget 
while you're asleep. So one of the stages of sleep actually helps with your skill learning. So if you're learning to play a musical instrument and you practice a scale over and over, you get a little better while you're practicing and then you get more better when you sleep it actually smooths out the performance, the motor performance. In addition to that, there are other stages of sleep that influence what's called memory consolidation. That is, it actually helps to burn in some of the most important memories. So if you study for a test before you go to sleep, then after you wake up, you have better memory than if you study for that test and then stay awake for the same amount of time. So sleep ends up having a big influence there as well. And not only does it help you to remember, it also helps you to forget some of the less desirable things. So details of your day that were somewhat mundane tend to be lost while you're asleep. And the emotional impact, particularly the negative emotional impact of things that happen to you will fade as you sleep. And that's important because we all know we've all had things happen to us where somebody gets really angry at somebody else for something they did. And in the moment, they're really angry. But over time, and in part because of sleep, you begin to disengage your memory for the event from the emotional content of that event which is part of what enables you to get on with your life and to do other things with those people who may have done something to bother you. What is one piece of homework that you would give to people who are listening to this episode? Bob, you got some homework for people? I do. I do. And, you know, I think I would spend a few minutes thinking about what are the things that I experience and have experienced in the past that bring me joy. And I would schedule those into my week. I think a lot of people sort of do a lot of drudgery that they think, well, I'll get this over with. And then, you know, a week from now, a month from now, this summer, whenever they're thinking about it, I'll schedule in a little happiness here. And I think, you know, it's important to schedule happiness into every day. That's easier for some people than others because some people's lives are easier than others. They have more privileges. They have more opportunities for choice, those kinds of things. But I think irrespective of your life sentence, your life sentence, (laughs) irrespective of your life circumstances, to be able to put yourself in situations where you think, even if it's for five minutes, you know, I would have a conversation with a friend that I haven't spoken to in a while, or I'm going to take a walk or whatever it is that brings you some feeling of happiness and joy, that that should be a part of every day. Yeah. And I'm going to add one thing to that, which is I think that as another piece of homework, find somebody you haven't talked to in a while and ask them to talk in some amount of detail about what they're doing and why they're doing it and learn from the people around you. Learning doesn't have to be drudgery. It doesn't have to involve sitting in front of a big book and struggling through it. We learn a tremendous amount because we're such a social species from the people around us. And taking the time to really sit down and have a great conversation with somebody and understand the way they think about things can be a a really valuable learning experience and at the same time also be a joyous one. And I think having more of those conversations is a great thing to do. Where can people find the two of you and the book online? I'm the designated self-promotion person in this duo. We So the podcast we do, the radio show, it's called Two Guys on Your Head. It can be found wherever podcasts are found. So iTunes, Stitcher, you can go to twoguysonyourhead.org. If you're in the Austin, Texas area, of course, we're on KUT Radio in Austin. And you can also find our book Brain Briefs pretty much wherever books are sold, except that our publisher is a division of Barnes & Noble. So it's, it's not available as a Kindle book. The hardcover is available on, on Amazon, but they refuse to make a Kindle. So the seven Nook readers have access to it. (laughs) 
Well, Art, Bob, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being on the show. I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I know the listeners are going to get a ton out of all the incredible insights that both of you shared. Well, thanks, Matt. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for inviting us on. This is great. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this information? Because of that, we've created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. You can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and joining our email list. If you want to get all the incredible info, links, transcripts, everything we talked about in this show, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes page. You can get it on our website, scienceofsuccess.co. Just hit the show notes button at the top. We have show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.